Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's The Wonky Show. We'll chat China. Is UKHE too close to and too reliant on the superpower? Uh, there's new stats out on mental health and graduate jobs and vaccine uptake among students and more evidence on the digital divide. It's all coming up. There'll be other limiting factors which haven't been impacted by the, acad- by, um, the pandemic. Uh, the diversity um, of staff, the curriculum uh, and lots of other things. But tackling these uh, awarding gaps... You know, there's no silver bullet here. Um, one of the factors may have been dealt with. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm your host, Jim Dickinson, and here to help us understand what's going on in higher education this week. As usual, we have two fabulous guests. Uh, in Windy Gravesend, Selena Bolingbrook is a consulting fellow for the Halpin Partnership. Selena, your highlight of the week? I, I think the highlight of the week has possibly got to be the um, bumper release of stats from the Office of National <laughs> Statistics. <laughs> well, we'll come to that. Uh, and in Beckenham in South East London. Amate Doku is a consultant with the Nows Group. Amate, your highlight of the week, please. Oh, well, um, I'm reading um, Ian Dale's um, compilation of essays on all the prime ministers, which is a fascinating read. Uh, and I just this week got to the chapter um, on Gladstone um, when it all kicked off um, in um, Liverpool with the, the renaming or the controversy around the renaming of the um, of Gladstone Hall's uh, student accommodation because of his links to the uh, slave trade. So I thought that was an interesting um Coincident, um, uh, meaning that I was slightly more informed than, about him than I otherwise would have been. <laughs> Fantastic stuff. So, good. We start this week with China. A report led by former Universities Minister Joe Johnson warns of the poorly understood risks of increasingly close collaboration between UK universities and China. Amate, tell us more. Well, um, yes. Yeah, so, um, obviously, um, Joe Johnson's been keeping himself busy after his uh, various stints in, uh, as, as Universities Minister. Um, but a really interesting... Um, uh, and pretty comprehensive report um, looking at um, the relationship that um, the UK higher education has um, with China. Um, and yeah, the report highlights a, cu- a couple of areas. Um, it, it, it focuses on um, the role that, that China is playing globally in research and development, um, you know, showing that it's um, set to overtake the US or predi- uh, forecasting that it's set to overtake the US as the world's biggest spender on research and development, um, as well as the UK's most significant research partner. And, and there's a really interesting um, sort of comparison looking at the fact that um, in, in 2019, the UK collaborated with China on about 16,000, uh, over 16,000 research um, papers, um, which is from, you know, about 100 papers in the early 1990s. Um, but it's pretty it's pretty um punchy report um and um 
you know, it, 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 it's pretty critical. Um, I think sort of, um, it, it is pretty critical about the current approach. It's, it sort of gives the impression, um, that the view, yeah, the view of those writing the report is that the, the UK really needs to up its game when it, in terms of understanding the policy, it needs to start to be, um, more robust against China. It describes China as an authorita- authoritarian dictatorship that shows little desire to transform itself into Western style liberal democracy, whilst understanding the sort of, um, reality of the situation that um the relationship between um UKHE and and China is um fairly intertwined so lots of interesting policy recommendations there um proposing to increase the QR funding um so that it's not reliant on um international students um, um focusing on the fact that there are lots of international students from China as well um and really um saying that the you know lots of requests for UKRI to be more robust in this to do more auditing to do more um checking um existing research partnerships um and yeah i mean it, uh, one kind of takeaway for me is that, that i think there needs to be a bit more primary research uh, on this but uh, yeah a v- very interesting report selena the, the 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 that line that amate pulls out about you know the authoritarian dictatorship that shows little desire to transform itself into western style liberal democracy kind of kind of is what it is isn't it but 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 joe johnson then says that requires a carefully calibrated policy mix uh, is your sense that what's in here would address the you know the concern or you know you know what, what what's your view on the kind of solutions that have been proposed here um i think that the um there's obviously a certain amount of um, posturing that sits behind the scenes in the uh, kind of premise around what China is and what China is trying to do in terms of its uh, links with UK higher education, which have been built up over a long period of time, but also built up at a time where it has been extending its international links, uh, you know, across uh, the states, uh, Australia, various other um, uh, countries, and um, I think that the solutions that are proposed in here probably aren't going to unwind what uh, what has already been laid out extensively in terms of relationships between UK universities and Chinese universities, and indeed a sense of appetite from Chinese students to study overseas, and increasingly for UK students to uh, take up the opportunity for uh, some experience of transnational education uh, in China. Um, so I think it, it, it's helpful to point out and to, uh, as the report says, for us to be aware of the extensiveness of the links, the depth of the links and the volume of activity. But um, I would think where we are right now, and certainly from an ind- individual institution's perspective, it, the solutions that are proposed here are, are, are not going to be effective at rolling back. Yeah, I would say, I mean, I, one of the things I was talking to someone about the other day is what, what even would rolling back look like? I mean... I, I, even if universities needed the money less, what is it that they would do to discourage students from China coming? I mean, we can't have people discriminating against students from China, surely, in what are supposed to be, officially and in theory, you know, kind of you know, standards for admission that, you know, are just slightly adapted for each country. Uh, well, I think there are sort of two things there. The, the first thing, which, uh, and admittedly, I haven't read the report in, in the most detail to... to, to to um to, to potentially qualify this but but i the the overall impression i get from the initial um review that i've done is that there isn't enough focus on the role that u.s foreign policy plays in all of this either so um it 
going back to you know what you highlighted about that carefully calibrated um, policy response, if the ratcheting up of um, uh, um, U.S. foreign policy um, towards China increases as, as China's influence in the world grows, you know, are we going to end up in a situation where effectively we are going to have to start picking sides? And it, you know, it, in that case, it feels like U.S. foreign policy is going to drive a lot of what we end up doing um, in in that first instance, particularly given that we're outside of the EU now, and um, you know, that focus on alliances is even more important. Um, but interestingly, the report doesn't really say that – it talks about diversifying um, um, international student recruitment, but it says that it, from a point of view of saying because we don't want to become too over-reliant on it because we actually think it's going to drop off over time potentially um, because of the rise of universities in China. So th- there isn't really very much in there which is saying we need to stop Chinese students from coming to the UK, um, but it's there's, there's something around – you know, it is as Chinese institutions um, grow and 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 as the as the government potentially starts to incentivise more students to stay and study domestically, that is a risk for for UK universities. Now we're less exposed, like places like Australia, um, but um, still, the, the reports are saying UK universities need to um, uh, prepare for that. Um, but even in their own forecast, um, it, it doesn't suggest that in the next couple of years we're going to see a massive drop off or anything like that so um as Celine pointed out the yeah the the appetite from from uk uh, from from chinese students and their families to get that uk higher education is still very very strong selena is is you know at the risk of being accused of it being a sort of you know britain britain hating you know Wokenista or whatever you know Piers Morgan would call me this week is the danger that you know we start off trying to spread soft power by you know having people come to the country then we start to rely on the money and now all of a sudden we're worried that people are learning about the things we're teaching and taking them back to their country I mean there's a bit of manufactured anxiety around some of this so you know Potentially, there are different types of risks. One is, if you like, a business risk, which is about some U- universities in the UK, their reliance on uh, international students and Chinese students in particular. But that's very few institutions in reality. Um, uh, and, and of course, all, all organisations, including universities, want to have a kind of broad base in terms of where they get their income from, because that naturally de-risks it. Um, I think the political risk, um, absolutely, you know, from a higher education perspective about, you know, the fundamental core principles of what higher education is about, um, it, 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 it is about uh, you know, uh, I- I expanding knowledge networks. It is about lifting up the power of, of knowledge and expertise uh, and sharing that. Uh, I think that, you know, for for many, many years, I sort of go back into, um, you know, the 1990s, considering early international partnerships um, in countries that we didn't have as, you know, a lot of experience in, in, in doing business with and who had fundamentally different uh, and, and not democratic regimes to what we had. And, and I can remember a lot of the debate that we had within the universities that I worked in at the time were about we have a set of policies, a set of regulations, a set of principles about what we are trying to do. And as long as we can continue to uphold um, our own and, uh, you know, sense of what is uh, the right way to deliver a higher education, then that is what is fundamentally important to us. One of the things which I think the, the report 
sort of does implicitly, but I think explicitly you've, you've really got to separate out. Chinese students are very different to Chinese institutions, are very different to the Chinese government. Now, there's obviously a clear relationship between all those um, players, and, and we know that... Um, you know, some of the significant issues um, uh, that, that the report is right to highlight around, um, um, you know, encroaching on freedom of expression and the rest of it. But uh, but in a sense, I would have liked to have seen that really tackled in isolation um, because I don't always think it's helpful <laughs> to equate, for example, the number of Chinese students coming to, to, to the UK with anything to do with, you know, encroaching on... Um, free speech you know the vast majority well not necessarily all of them but you know, a lot of them are undergraduate students who are doing you know three or four year courses um who aren't doing any research and then they go back and they get jobs so uh, it's really important to separate that out i think it is right to draw attention to the broader geopolitical challenges and, and the way in which those um research partnerships could be leveraged by um uh, by the government um in in the way that lots of governments in history have done so so i'm not saying the uk is in any way uh, immune from that i think that's right and that's fine it's important to, to bear that in mind we know that there's been challenges with um sort of reputation laundering uh, and, and the rest of it that that certainly needs to be looked at and robust things need to be put in place but that shouldn't be conflated with the number of chinese students coming in and arguably depending on what's actually being researched shouldn't really be conflated with the actual research that's you know taking place you know if it's around security then potentially if it's around um i don't know addressing social challenges and social issues maybe not so i think there needs to be a bit more of a a nuance in this conversation to make sure that we aren't just casting um everybody and anybody who comes from china as as a sort of threat and i think that would be a real issue um, in the debate moving forward. Because Selena, Amitai's right, isn't he? That there is a danger here that reports like this add to the kind of chorus in the background that leads to, you know, home students or, you know, home-based academics having this kind of level of, you know, unconscious suspicion around, you know, Chinese students or visiting Chinese academics and so on. And we already know there's an integration problem on campus in many universities. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think the tone of, um, you know, the, the, the press coverage around this would, would back that up, regardless of whether it's a supposed kind of right-wing uh, press view or a left-wing press view. And I think it's also within the context of what we knew to be a fair amount of uh, East Asian racism, um, you know, that dates back, well, further than the, the pandemic, but certainly with higher profile last year. Um, so I, I, I think there does need to, uh, to uh, as Amate says, you know, the, the Chinese student is, is, is uh, well, there are many of them <laughs> who, with all different points of view, you know what I mean? So this conflation with, between the Chinese student, the average Chinese student who we meet on campus with the author authoritarian Chinese government is 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 false. Now let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hi, I'm Jan MacArthur, Senior Lecturer in Education and Social Justice at Lancaster University. My article in Wonky challenges higher education to think more radically about assessment reform. Instead of using COVID to rethink why we use exams and our beliefs about the purposes of assessment, Many universities have simply pursued technocratic solutions that reproduce the trusted orthodoxy of the time-limited, unseen exam as closely as possible. Instead, assessment should begin by thinking about the student as a whole person. What are their needs and aspirations? How will assessment help these to be achieved and recognised? 
Authentic assessment is good, but not if we conflate the real world with simply the world of work. We need forms of assessment that will nurture the creative questioning and nuanced forms of knowledge in our graduates that are essential for the challenges ahead. Assessment shapes how and what students learn, so we must think beyond the time-old practices and harness assessment to help address social and economic problems. The changes required are profound. Not least, we must recognise that the social fetishisation of grades is individually damaging and socially unproductive. Now, it says here it's been a bumper week for fans of the Office for National Statistics. Well, I don't know. Selena, what did we learn this week? Hmm. It has been a bumper week indeed, Jim. So uh, on Monday, the ONS published an analysis of graduate labour market outcomes. And that that covers the first three quarters of 2020. So uh, quite an exceptional year. We know that. Uh, and I think, I think the headlines won't be unsurprising to people. So the report shows that recent graduates have struggled to find work during the pandemic, uh, with a record 12% of recent graduates unable to find work during the third quarter of 2020. And I should say, DK's done a uh, great uh, article on the Wonky website uh, about this data release. Uh, But it does say that graduates of all ages still are more likely to be in work and are increasingly likely to be found in highly skilled roles. Uh, Although there is some evidence that some graduates have taken and less skilled work during the pandemic. And I think, you know, all of us that, that know graduates will, will know that in terms of um, their experience over the last few months. I think what's important to remember when we look at these kind of uh, uh, data releases is that, first of all, graduates, however bad they're doing, they're doing much better than their peers who are non-graduates. Um, and, you know, non-graduate young people have suffered most, without a doubt, in this pandemic in economic and employment terms and indeed in social terms. But I'm going to come on to that in a moment. I think the other thing that if you're sitting in a university career service, uh, employment service that you probably need to be thinking about, particularly in terms of some of the uh, local and regional initiatives to boost employment opportunities, is that where you have that underemployment of graduates, quite often that can lead to unemployment for other groups. Uh, so it's, it's you know, not surprising that graduates are both more occupationally and geographically mobile uh, than other adults in the population and quite often other young people in the population. So um, the idea of the kind of graduate premium in the employment market is sustained. Um, of course, those headlines are going to mass subject differences. Uh, so we know that certain industries particularly those industries that might have provided the sort of first step on the ladder for many graduates. Uh, And quite often that can be retail, that can be hospitality. You know, people are coming out of university just desperate to to earn some cash to to sustain themselves perhaps before moving into, you know, a desired graduate job. They won't have been there this this summer. And there are other industries, creative cultural industries have, you know, taken a a real disproportionate hit uh, for for, for young entrants more generally. Um, also, quite often, because a lot of the graduates who are trying to make a living in those industries go down the freelance route, uh, sometimes not through choice, just through necessity. But we are blessed because it isn't just graduate employment that we've got a data release on this week. Uh, there is also a subset of some ONS uh, data work on uh 
well, it's called the Student COVID-19 Insight Survey. And it looks at uh, their behaviours, their plans, their opinions, and most importantly, student well-being. And it's for English higher education students. And uh, it, it, it's been taken at periodic intervals during the pandemic. So uh, this was well covered in the press. And the, the headline that uh, was sort of really used by, by, by most press was that uh, a quarter of students reported feeling lonely, often or always. And that is at a rate more than three times that of the general population. Uh, in the same period between February and March this year, almost two thirds of students indicated that their mental health had worsened since the start of the autumn term in 2020. So I think there's just a couple of things that I want to pull out. Because I think, again, you know, we, 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 this, the headlines aren't surprising. Um, but I think that one of the things we always need to remember when we look at ONS stats around students and graduates is to also look at the data around from the general population at young people more generally. And there is not exactly the same survey, but a very similar survey that ONS have released that looks at the general population. And uh, I had a, a quick dig into that. And if you look at young people between 18 and 24 compared to other adult age groups, they too are uh, more unhappy than average. Um, there's also some interesting uh, data cuts in terms of region. So um, people who live in London and Wales have been more unhappy during the pandemic. Um, and in fact, if you're a man over 70 living in the East Midlands, I mean, you're positively laughing compared to everybody else. Yes, of course, we need um, greater funding. But actually, we what's more useful is funding in trying to find sustainable solutions for this stuff so that every time there's a crisis, we don't say, well, we just need more money. You know, where, where, where is a longer term um, conversation? Where do we grapple with those really challenging um, things of, you know, where's the you know, which bit of the support is a responsibility for the university, which bit is the support is, 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 a, is you know, a responsibility um, for the NHS. Um, and arguably, and this may be shift, drifting away a bit, but arguably the reforms that are coming in in the NHS, which are focused a lot more around place, rather than just looking at individual um, trusts and uh, as, as sort of uh, providers of, of services, could be something that universities certainly more broadly could be partnering in on but potentially when it comes to um student support and student mental health there's an opportunity there as there's reorganization in the nhs for uh, universities to um get involved in that but uh, yeah i think just calling for for greater funding provider by provider isn't really going to necessarily uh, probably either result in very much funding or necessarily be the solution um that we need um but i think more broadly one of the you know just thinking about the budget last week as a sort of um, precursor to to this um, data coming out, you know, the, the data isn't on, on employment and, and and isn't really sort of surprising. It's what you'd expect given what's happened. What's concerning is that the um, solutions don't appear to be particularly um, uh, well thought through, or indeed, um, as I was, I was saying earlier, or, or particularly joined up. So you've got to be bringing uh, employers, um, the skills agenda, um, universities, colleges, um, skills, what well, skills agenda answers skills gaps, and then that broader thing of where is employment even going in the longer term, 
and how does that inform you know what's being taught you've got to bring that all together to both tackle the immediate challenges but also the long-term challenges and i just do not see that happening anywhere um you know the the most like we saw from the budget is we've got some more work coaches um but even that's not really um geared towards the the demographics that we're talking about today so you know, some real, real challenges, but I think a huge opportunity. Now, every week on the show, we delve deep into the sector's past to discover stories of how things were and how things came to be. With Nottingham Trent's academic registrar, Mike Ratcliffe, here's the hidden history of HE. The first European university, the thing that we think of, now there's a, a debate about whether um, African and um, Middle Eastern uh, cities had things that are effectively universities and they uh, you know, seriously antedate the European university but the thing that we think of as a university universitas is a guild and it's first set up as a guild uh, by a bunch of uh, law students who've gathered in Bologna uh, and their problems are um, issues with the townspeople who keep trying to fleece them um, but also issues with the people who are teaching them so the university, the guild of people in that city um is formed of the students. So it's a guild of the students. Universitas means the collection of everybody in a place doing something. You can have a universitas of cobblers. In this case, it's a universitas of students. So they set up a guild and it has a set of rules. And the rules are relatively straightforward for the students. Um, there's a set of rules about not fighting each other. But apart from that, it's very limited in terms of the student regulations. All the regulations are all about the staff. So they're all about um, the staff are supposed to uh, turn up on time. There's some very strict rules about they have to start when they have to start the lectures and when they have to finish them and if the lecture is going on for too long the students are obliged to get up and go to show that their displeasure at the uh, uh, at this kind of tardiness um, there's clear rules about following the curriculum not skimping on the hard bits making the students making sure the students understand the curriculum properly um, and not getting into uh, any of the dubious uh, you know, teaching the coasting bits so they've got to make that clear their staff have to swear allegiance to the students rector um, they uh, aren't allowed out of town without asking permission to the students. Uh, they have to get permission to do that. And obviously, the way the staff get paid is through the student fee. So, yeah, there's a clear economical link, but the students have all these rules. Unfortunately, when we get... Unfortunately. When you get to Northern European universities, they're more theological in focus, and so it's the bishop's chancellor who takes charge of organisation, and these become master's universities. So northern European universities are master's and scholar's universities, whereas a group of the Italian and southern European universities are student universities. So you get this, this dichotomy of organisational structures. We don't get a proper student university in, in, in England, certainly. There's a sense of hybridness in the Scots universities with their rector, but it's nothing of the same kind of power that we get from uh, southern Europe. Now, next up, it's been DigiFest this week, and to mark the occasion, JISC has published this year's Digital Experience Insights Survey. Amate, what did we learn? Similar to, to what we've sort of been discussing um, today, a really um, timely um, um, survey um, of over um, 21,000 students, uh, and some really interesting um, findings. We find that um, uh, 36% um, agreed that um, they were given a chance to be involved in online learning. Um, and that potentially, <laughs> I think we, we would all agree, could be could be a lot more. Um, but despite the, this, we've got 66% of students um, saying that they had a really positive experience with their online learning um, and just over half praising the design um, of online learning materials. 
I think there's a really interesting story here. This is a story of um, the higher education sector um, um, making a transition faster than potentially it ever has in its history um, in terms of the delivery of its of its education. I think probably unparalleled in history uh, in such a short space of time. And overall, if these stats are to be um, uh, to, to, to to be believed. Um, overall fairly successful um, given the speed at which um, uh, this change has, has happened from the point of view from the students. However, um, I think the um, if, if you were to take it as a, 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 a major experiment or, or a very quick pilot, as it, as it were, um, you know, the, these results wouldn't be too bad. The problem is that transition has happened uh, and the expectations will only grow for this stuff. Um, and, and I think satisfaction potentially could start to decline very quickly if, if longer-term improvements aren't made. There's a really big question now about where does the sector go with this. Um, and lots of the conversation we've been having recently um, show that there are lots of very, as, 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 you, as you would expect, lots of very different perspectives on, on where um, universities should go. Some people see this as an opportunity for um, a complete transformation in, in the delivery of, of teaching and learning, um, much more online delivery, um, a sort of Netflixization of the uh, lecture series, um, a real um, focus on that on that online um, delivery. Um, others saying, actually, no, students really want to be on campus and um, the online delivery will be there, but it'll only be a part of what we do. It won't be, you know, people want face-to-face -face learning, particularly in the whole conversation around fees. And then there are quite a lot of institutions who are sort of in this slightly amorphous middle bit where they're saying, you know, we can't go back. Online delivery is, is here to stay. We want that to be a sort of hybrid experience with um, students on campus, but we're not entirely sure. Well, it's, it's, this is easy, I'm saying. People want to be on campus staring at their phone. <laughs> <laughs> well, precisely. But, but I think it also, we've got to be really careful about this, though, because to some extent, um, Everybody going online and, you know, obviously we've got students still on campus, but by and large, if it's not face-to-face -face teaching, you're in your room on your laptop um, um, accessing resources and, and lectures and the rest of it. I used to worry about students not being able to afford to join societies or to buy textbooks, but, uh, you know, th there's, there's, there's more evidence of a digital divide in here, isn't there? That, that should, you know, worry us. Yeah, it should worry us. It absolutely should. Um, and uh, I, I think that, you know, this is the kind of thing that it's very difficult to come up with sustainable university solutions to. It seems to me that there is an increasing requirement that there needs to be national solutions for people because, yeah, I I, I, you know, I've been a school governor for a long time, and uh, in in uh, most recently in Tower Hamlets. But you know, it was a very very significant divide in the early months of the pandemic, and it was something that uh, the, the the school that I was working with put a huge amount of effort into into changing. But you know, in a way, it, 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 I think that the digital engagement is is something that can be sold it, it it takes money it takes commitment it takes a framework but you can see many ways and i think you know as well as as government i think technology companies have got a huge incentive to think about you know very big picture solutions to some of these problems i think what is harder to change and i think universities do have um a a role here is thinking about how the nature uh, and uh, of teaching and the relationship between student and teacher needs to change. Um, I would contend that there is a much 
uh, greater need for more of a coaching style to be able to support students with online learning uh, because you know the the information transmission it, you know we're not reliant on a teacher for that anymore in a lot of ways um, but it is about supporting how students engage with that material how they question that material how they bring their own critical challenge to it and I think when it's done well it can be a much more positive experience than sitting you know in a large lecture theatre or in a seminar with 30 people in it which you know <laughs> unless you're very confident you, 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 you it's very rare that you're going to be able to kind of expose your own individual learning questions um, so I think there's lots and lots of potential that comes from reports like this I think the other thing we need to remember in universities is that in many ways schools uh, have dealt with this this transition incredibly well and I have no sense that they will be rolling back um, so I think yet again we are going to have in you know two or three years four years time a set of young people coming into universities that will have ever higher expectations not just about the quality of digital learning in terms of you know platforms and access and content but actually about the skills uh, of, of teachers in terms of helping students to learn now just before we go this is hot off the press because we record at half past nine on a thursday and people keep re- there's a there's a thing about releasing higher education stats at half past nine on a thursday but while we've been recording uh two of the office for students key performance measures have been updated to reflect 2019 2020 and there are two big headlines here so first of all the gap in degree outcomes so good honors firsts or two ones between disabled students and non-disabled students has narrowed really quite rapidly from 2.5 percentage points to 1.3 percentage points and also fairly dramatically the gap in degree outcomes between white students and black students has gone from 22.1 percentage points to 18.3 percentage points. So two quite significant national uh, attainment gaps significantly narrowed at the end of last academic year when we know from a few weeks ago there was also a significant wedge of grade inflation. So Amate, uh, hot take time, what what, what could be going on here? Um, Well, look, I I think uh, one of the things which is sort of well documented is the... um you know, both the no detriment policies and the um, difference in the way in which um, assessments have been, um, uh, um, well, the difference in the, in the types of assessments that we've had uh, over, over this over this last year. So um, those two things could have um, had a significant role in, in con- contributing to that. I think the challenge will be um, how do you replicate that in uh, further in years which hopefully will quote-unquote go back to normal um so um there's it's going to be a really complex piece of work uh, combining both you know understanding of the different policies that different institutions took which is the other thing every lots of institutions did completely different things um even though this is appears to be a narrowing across the board so we've got to have a look at that we've got to understand from students uh, qualitatively you know what was different about this year that might have contributed to this um I think there's a real opportunity where there's the appetite to do that hard work. Um, I don't know. Selena, this is a this is really difficult now for OFS, isn't it? Because you know, it, either it says crack down on grade inflation that you had temporarily, 
and, and the obvious way to do that would be to reverse all of this progress on disabled students and black students or or what exactly i mean it's really difficult now isn't it does ofs focus on the narrowing of these gaps as long as people can prove they've kept their standards by doing different assessment or does ofs focus on the grade inflation this is a this is a toughie well i think you know what i think they should do which is to focus on the material issues and the material issues is the awarding gaps um, and I, I think it really is quite significant because the pace of change is something, that, as Amate says, that institutions will surely want to really dig into their own data to see what has happened and most important, why. Um, but, you know, just look back at the nine years before this year's data release. So over those nine years, the awarding gap between black and white students, it was 27.1%. And in nine years, it fell to 22%, which is already is, is still a very significant gap between black and white students. But in nine years, it only narrowed by 5%. And then in one year, in one year, it's fallen from 22% to 18%. So in one year, it's fallen by 4%. So, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. And, 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 and this is something that makes – we go back to what we were talking about earlier in the show about employment prospects. This is something that has material impact for our students, our graduates, and indeed a, a, an impact on our institutions. So I very much hope that OFS do focus on trying to support institutions to unpick why we've had this, this great news. It is good news um, and, and doesn't fall back into – the uh, concerns that were essentially raised by politicians. There's never been a more important moment, has there, than to try to use students and talk to students about why these stats have narrowed rather than just trying to, you know, <laughs> head scratch over the stats. It's working out what leads to stats like this that's important, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. That, this is why, as I was saying, you really need, rather than just sort of stepping back and saying, great, we've, we've, done, a, we've done a good job, really... Um, you know, questioning um, uh, and, and trying to get to the, to the root cause of, of, of why this data has, has has changed in this way. Look, there will be other limiting factors which haven't been impacted by the by um, the pandemic, uh, the diversity um, of staff, the curriculum, uh, and lots of other things. But tackling these uh, awarding gaps, you know, there's no silver bullet here. Um, one of the factors may have been dealt with. We've got to see to what extent. And then keep working and chipping away at all the other things, um, as I said, to the diversity of the, of, of the academy, um, the uh, curriculum, um, the, the other aspects of the mode of delivery that might have not might not have changed, to really make sure that we're, we're understanding you know, student support, to really make sure we're taking the, the fullest view possible of, of um, the factors contributing to these gaps and what can be done to tackle them. So that's about it for this week. Remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or wherever else you listen. And to keep you and your organisation ahead of everything that's going on in UKHE, do head to the website to find out more about our subscription services. So thanks very much to Amate, Selena, Mike Ratcliffe, everyone at Team Wonky uh, that makes it happen behind the scenes. And until next week... Stay wonky. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.